Okay, here we go. Well, the first was the rabbi's call to follow, and now this one is the Messiah's charge. And it's a radical charge. If you thought Akalatheo was intense, you ain't seen nothing yet. Ah, this is like, I gotta like brace myself even for what we got coming up here. But this call to take up the cross, such a radical call. Look with me over in Mark chapter 8. This is an interesting section of, of Scripture because you have first in 22 through 26, Jesus healing a man who at first can kind of see, it seems as though, but he's not clear in what he sees. And then Jesus needs to clarify him with regards to what it is that he is seeing and in a sense touch him again. The reason that is interesting is because it's exactly what Peter does. It seems as though Peter gets it. But the very second you think that he gets it, he needs to be corrected again. And a big part of that for us is to understand the Messiah and then to really understand what his charge is when he's calling to us not only to follow, but to take up the cross. So in verse 27, after this healing episode, it says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. That's an important detail. I was able to be there a couple times in Caesarea Philippi. It's well north and west of where most of the activity would have occurred throughout the Gospels, well north and west even of the Sea of Galilee, which was the northern uh, edge of, of Israel. But it was a place where I think Jesus was trying to get away, but as he gets away up to Caesarea Philippi, because it's, it's just before he then begins his uh, kind of the, the descent of the narrative back into Jerusalem, and, and he brings his disciples away to Caesarea Philippi, and it's, it's named because uh, Herod had built it in, in honor of Augustus Caesar. And at this spot, it, it is amazing. You walk up to it, and there's this huge, sheer cliff. I'm in Denver. It's this mediocre, <laughs> sheer cliff before you. <laughs> Everything's relative. And, but... But when you walk up, it's actually frightening looking because it's this mouth of a cave because it's the headwaters to the Jordan River. And, and, and from this deep well spring comes it, but, but the spring is so deep that you, know, you can kind of throw rocks and it sounds like they keep clanging around until you don't hear them anymore. And it was also considered to be the place where you would enter Hades or the gates of Hades. And it was known at the time as this big, big, dark, dark, scary cave was known as the gates of Hades. That would have been there. We know in the Matthew 16 version of this, when Jesus says that, you know, Peter, I'll build my church and, and the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So there's this reference to the gates of Hades there in Caesarea Philippi in the different synoptic uh, gospels take on this very same passage. So anyway, you've got the, the gates of Hades. Now, the other thing that was built right to the side of the gates of Hades on the sheer rock was the great temple to Caesar Augustus. And it's the place where the first time in the Roman Empire, it really became normative to be able to deify the emperor. And it is where the test of patriotism 
began to be the statement, Caesar is Lord, Kaiser Kurios. And the response, of course, to that later with Christians is not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And that actually grew as a reaction against the charge to say Caesar is Lord, uh, interestingly. Well, anyway, so you have kind of the, the, the great power of the headwaters of the Jordan, the great power of Hades itself, the great power of the deity of Rome as 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 personified in the emperor right there. And then carved into the sheer rocks would have also been different uh, little altars to different gods, including Baal, and then also the Greek god Pan. And the, the place today is, is actually named after Pan. Uh, it's called Banyos, that, that, that area. And, and so you have all of these competing ideas of sovereignty, all in the backdrop of Jesus right now. Hades, gates of Hades, Caesar, Caesar is Lord, Baal, all the idol worship, all put together. And even from Judaism, the headwaters of the Jordan River itself is as kind of mystical and cool as that all is. It's before all of that, and the Bible does give us the, the, uh, the hint here that this happens at Caesarea Philippi. So, with that as the backdrop, he says, who do people say I am? Now, that's a loaded question. Because if you answer that you're the Messiah, you're the son of God, you're the ultimate authority figure with all of this vying for ultimate authority around you, well, that's pretty provocative and that's pretty profound. They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter Gets it right. Finally, he must be so fired up. (laughs) Foot out of mouth. Yes, I got it. You are the Messiah. And I'm sure he waited until the other shoe to drop, right? And then Jesus was like, that's right, but just just don't tell everybody. And Peter's like, yeah, (laughs) check me out. But that only lasts a moment, just like the man who sees the uh, trees walking around doesn't really, really see just yet. It says, (laughs) He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. That's not the Messiah I was talking about, uh, Peter's thinking to himself. Like the whole time he must be biting his tongue as Jesus is saying all of this. Like, but, but... No, that's not the Messiah. Earlier, when I, when I said Messiah, that, no, Messiah, you're gonna, like, come riding over the horizon on a great white steed, and you're gonna rally all people, not only to righteousness, but you're gonna grab men's hearts, and we're gonna rally to courage, and we're gonna sweep these nasty, oppressive Romans out of our blessed promised land. That's what we're talking about. There's no defeat in that. There's no crying in baseball. There's no killing of Messiah. What are you talking about right here? But he bides his time until Jesus finishes the, all of that is going to happen to him. And then it says in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He probably thought he was being sensitive. Well, I did say he's, you know, the son of God. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring him to the side here before I like set him straight. Look like trees to him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked 
Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so we're now going to have a clarification, not only of who the Messiah is, but also what we are to do when we follow this Messiah. And, and for us, this is particularly important. We're not confused about the Messiah in our day and age. It's all been clarified for us. We understand the chief priests, the elders, teachers of the law, rejecting him, persecuting him, killing him. On the third day, he rises. We got all that down. But what we don't necessarily have down is what does it look like to really be a disciple of that Messiah? Because we think it's, well, I think what you do is you, you go to church and, you know, you, you participate and, you, you know, when they say peace be with you, you turn and you shake hands to that next person and, you know, you have the fellowship like that. And, and then maybe you might even be really committed and you have like a group of guys or gals that you get together with and, and you, you go to Starbucks maybe once every two weeks on a Saturday morning, if it works out, of course, you know, if the kid's soccer doesn't get in the way because, my goodness, you know, we've got to love our kids. And, and, uh, and then we sit over a double cappuccino frappuccino and, and we, discuss a, we discuss a psalm. Right? But for the great majority of Christianity, what is it but that? And that's like, well, and I know I'm going a bit, bit hyperbolic on that with the caricature, but nonetheless, it's, it's not, not a whole lot different, and it's not going to look like what Jesus lays out here. And here's what he lays out. After having said, this is what I'm going through, he then says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Uh, I often picture this verse because you can climb up on top of that rock. You all could probably jump, you know, given your abilities with, with, with mountainous terrain here. By the way, coming here, I've never had such... Ins- I was wearing, like, my Merrill shoes when I got off the, uh, the plane yesterday, thinking, like, yeah, I'm going to be, like, you know, kind of fitting in. It'll be good. Like, I never had such, like, an inferiority complex with regards to, like, hiking boots any- anywhere in my life. As I go, you know, I look at everybody in the airport, and I, and I feel like, oh, wow, I've, I've got, like, the kind of, like, the urban model that you would you'd kind of wear to the office. And, uh, you can, so, yeah, they say, like, Eskimos have, like, eight words for snow. Uh, I think Coloradans have like, you know, 10 words for hiking shoes. So those are trail runners. Well, these are actually. <laughs> so anyway, I was talking about climbing to the top of this little thing, right? But, but you can, and I, and I, I, I imagine being up there and then looking down at Jesus at this scene here. And I, and I always do this, and I thank God I actually had, we're so blessed to be able to go to this site. Uh, but, but to be on this site and to look down and imagine Jesus there, I kind of picture him in the middle. And then this verse says, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. So I, I, as, as I'm up there, I kind of look down and imagine Jesus there, and then kind of packed in close are those that are already his disciples, those that have already taken the charge to Akalatheo and, and come after him, and they're doing all that stuff. But then there's kind of in concentric rings in that crowd that is gathered around him as well. Probably in those concentric rings, a uh, different, differing levels of commitment, you know, as you get further and further out in, in each of those rings. But that's important to note, because what Jesus is about to do, maybe with a sweep of the hand to not only to the disciples up close, but also even to those that, you know, are, are, are back row type people. Uh, no offense. Uh, and, and with, they're just humble. They wanted other people to be able to really be able to get, be up here. No, but, but what Jesus would have done, you know, with that whole I'm good at alienating people all throughout. Don't you? you all hate me in a little while. Is, is with that sweep of the hand, he's about to say, whether you're right there or whether you're further out, he is going to make this the standard of following, of discipleship. And he's going to say, if any one of you, 
and I know it says here in verse uh, 30, 34, whoever wants to be my disciple, it's actually whoever wants to akalatheo. Whoever wants to akalatheo must deny themselves, take up the cross, and then he reiterates, akalatheo. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And so he gives this, this charge, and it's this idea of, of you've got to, I mean, no option here. If you want to come after me, if anyone wants to do this, I don't care if you're right here or whether you're out there, here are the basics, and we know these basics. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and akalatheo in this, in this regard. And deny yourself is, is rather straightforward. Life's, life's not about us anymore. But the one that's not so straightforward is take up the cross. What does it mean to take up the cross? Probably the most annoying interpretation of it is, well, for example, I, I play racquetball with a friend. And a lot of times he'll, he'll have a bad night's sleep. And we get up pretty early to play racquetball. And he'll, he'll say to me, oh, yeah, it was rough last night. I, I barely slept at all. Like, I only got like three hours of sleep. I guess that's just my cross to bear. And I'm like, no, no, that, you're not going to get crucified because you only slept three hours. Like, that, that's not, you know, and, 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 you know, sometimes we, you know, people have arthritis, or, you know, God forbid that you have arthritis. It's terrible, obviously. But we, we often talk about things like this, our, our everyday mundane annoyances or ailments or even difficulties in life, even, I mean, very serious things even. I, and I'm not actually trying to be flippant at this point, but very serious things. And we say, well, I guess that's just my cross to bear. That's not actually, by, by any stretch, what it was that Jesus had in mind when he was talking to this crowd. And to this crowd, when he had that standard sent out among them, it probably would have looked like, you know, when you, when you see old movies of, uh, you know, the A-bomb being tested and, and, and the shockwaves going out. I would imagine when he said, take up the cross, that among those concentric circles of commitment that were around him, that would have been like that. It would have been a shockwave that would have been out amongst them because he, in the midst of where they were, I mean, under the gaze of, of the temple to Augustus, before all these great sovereign powers that are trying to set themselves up before God himself. And he's about to say to them, you need to take up your cross. But especially with Rome looming so large and in, in, in no more a clear way than that temple to, to Augustus before them, to say, take up your cross. And now this is important because for us, a scripture should not mean now what it did not mean then. And there was nobody in that crowd who would have thought, hey, even if you've got a physical ailment, well, you're still going to have to follow me. They would never in a million years have thought that. But in 2,000 years they would have, because that's what we think. So maybe not a million years. Um, never mind. But they would have known clearly, just as Achalatheia would have been clear to them, so would have been the charge to take up your cross. Why? Because they've lived it. It's been all around them. Thank you, courtesy of Roman Empire and the great monument that stood before them. They would have known it quite well. As a matter of fact, in, in most of their lifetimes, 
would have been an incident that occurred in a place not too far from where most of them probably lived, Sephoris. You can see the Sea of Galilee. Most of Jesus' ministry was, uh, the Sea of Galilee is like a clock. You can see like around 11 o'clock is Capernaum um, and, and down through uh, Gennesaret uh, up to Corazino and Bethsaida. All of his ministry happened there. Uh, he was, grew up in Nazareth. He was considered a builder or a carpenter in Nazareth, as was uh, Joseph. But in Nazareth, there was only maybe 40, 50 families. After a while, you can only fix so many table legs. And how are you going to be a builder in that area? Well, where they most likely were builders is they were a commuter city to Sephoris. Sephoris was the big city of this area. It was also a big Roman garrison as well. A lot of military supplies were there. And sometime, we, we're not sure of dates because it, it ties to one of the census, sensi, sensi, uh, of either 4 BC, which due to a Gregorian Julian calendar shift is likely the date of Jesus' birth. I know he was born before Christ, given, given that, but you can get past that and just realize it's just a calendar glitch. It's all math. Uh, but, but it was either in 4 BC or 11 AD, sometime in one of those two spots, was something described by Josephus as a great insurrection against the Romans at Sephoris. Now, Sephoris is not mentioned in our Bibles, but it appears in most of our Bible maps in the back. And it is likely the spot where Jesus would have commuted every day as he was uh, practicing his trade as a builder, because Sephoris was a place that was being built up. Why? Because it had recently been raised to the ground, right at the time that Jesus would have needed to be ready to be able to build it. Uh, as would have Joseph. And, and the reason it was raised to the ground is that a, a fellow by the name of Judas, the, the Galilean, who's, who's actually even mentioned by Gamaliel later in the book of Acts, re, put together a, a rebellion against Rome. And the, the Judeans were, a, by, by nature, compared to most of the places where Rome had conquered, they were probably the, the, the deepest in terms of, of freedom lovers really wanting to throw off the yoke of oppression that Rome represented to them because so much of it was theological for them to be able to reclaim the great land that God had given to them. Uh, so this was one of the many. But what, what he likely would have had is all the best and the brightest of, of, of the men at the time. You know, these are the varsity athletes all convened together throughout all of the, the different areas of Israel, coming together, led by him, and they, they, they brought this siege against Sephoris and against the, the yoke of, of Roman oppression that was there. Looked like it was actually going quite well. Seems as though that the Romans, we don't have perfect information on this, but it seems as though the Romans were able to get word out. They brought extra garrisons in. They were able to put down this rebellion of many thousands of these best and brightest of the, of the young uh, Jews that were participating in this. And in doing so, they, they killed many right away, slaughtered them. But then they saved 2,000 of the most impressive, and they put them up on crosses, up and down all the Roman roads. And, and you can see here, even when Jesus would have traveled back to his hometown of Nazareth, that would have been, that purple line is a Luke 4 uh, indication of his travel. During that time, he would have had to have traveled all the way through the Roman roads that would have been likely connected through Sephoris. Sephoris was quite a hub, as was Tiberias as a, as a capital city too. And anyway, those Roman roads would have been lined with crosses. This is a, a depiction that I, that I found. Uh, somebody has their watermark on it. Sorry, whoever you are. Uh, but, but this is what it would have been like. There, there's a great book by, by Martin Hengel 
on crucifixion in the first century. And he, he actually cites this incident as well of what it would have been like as a first century Jew to have been walking just on your normal daily routine and so often encountering cross after cross. Now, in this one, Josephus says that there were so many crucified that in some cases they were three or four deep. Hengel goes on to write, and this artist doesn't seem to be t- to depict it just right, but Hengel goes on to write that there were two types of crosses. There was the lower cross and the higher cross. The higher crosses would have been put up on some sort of a hill like Calvary. Why? Because they wanted as many people to be able to see it as possible and have the greatest impact uh, as, as it would be more broadly viewable. However, there was a second cross, which was quite low. It would have been only maybe just you know, a little bit off the ground. And those were the ones that were placed along the Roman roads. Why? Because as you walk by and there are the people that you admired, there are the varsity athletes that you thought would be the one day, the ones that would lead you in this successful rebellion. There they are, only a few inches off the ground, almost at eye level as you're walking by them. You notice, too, that this depicts birds of, of prey, scavenger animals, really, that are flying above them. Most people, the indignity of the cross was also that you were not typically allowed to be buried according to Roman standards, that you would be basically devoured by scavenger animals, jackal-type type animals, or, or even birds that would, uh, you know, vulture-type birds that would come and, uh, and eat. The indignity of that is beyond description for somebody in the first century, to not be afforded the, the honor of some sort of a burial to have all of this. But all of that indignity all works together in a concert by Rome to be able to put up very effective billboards. And those billboards basically were saying, as you walked by, this will happen to you. You want to be, you want to play the man? You want to rise up? You want to be somebody? Well, you do. This will happen to you. And it was meant to be a living, breathing, disgusting illustration of deterrent for the people so that Rome could keep them in check. And thus crucifixion was used mostly for that that, that very idea. Uh, And it is a a really radical one. The only offenses that were punishable by crucifixion in the Roman Empire were mainly the the same two capital crimes that are punishable today because our, our, our penal code is not too different. It was inspired in some ways by the Roman penal code. And that would be murder and it would be insurrection against the state. Those are the two big ones. Now, there was also provisions for for runaway slaves. That would be kind of a side issue. But the two main ones were murder and insurrection, or rebellion, or or, or revolution against the state. All of those those men that were crucified uh, along these roads, all of these crucifixions that would have been maybe very familiar, if not even uh, ones that would have been witnessed by the people that Jesus is talking to in Mark chapter 8, would have been there as an example to quell any notion of revolution that would have been somehow been fomenting in their hearts. Um, now, some people will say, well, weren't there other crimes punishable by crucifixion? What's another crime that you might think might be punishable based on your Bible by, by crucifixion? Theft, robbery, right? Why? Sure, turn, turn to John 18.40. You can keep your finger here. We're going to keep coming back to Mark 8. But turn to John 18.40. I'll need a little bit of a group participation here. Does anybody have an ESV, NASB, King James, anything like that? So you, you, you're right there. On, on, well, Hans, okay, Hans, why don't you, why don't you read John 18:40? 
Okay, now Barabbas is the cross that Jesus takes. And why was Barabbas there? It says because he was a robber. Um, anybody have the N-E-T? Anybody have that? New English translation? You do? Can you read that one? Revolutionary. The message goes even further. They say Barabbas was a Jewish freedom fighter. Uh, how about the NIV? What's it say there? You're taking part in a rebellion, right? What's that? Taking part in an uprising. Uh, and that's right. The, the, the new NIV has taken part in an uprising. So you, we've got this. We've got this odd idea here of you know is it is it robber the the Greek word. Uh, for it is the Greek word leistes. And it's an interesting word because in our Bibles, as we look at, at John 18.40, we have this rather significant range that you guys just shared. For, for, for example, we've got outlaw, robber, bandit, uh, depending on your translation, as well as rebel, revolutionary, freedom fighter. Why such disparate takes? on this same Greek word, leistes. Now, the Greek word is the, the Greek word for someone who is a, a robber, a literally you know, some sort of a, a thief of some sort of another. Uh, but why, why, in some cases, is it, is it viewed as a, a revolutionary or freedom fighter? Well, the reason being is, for example, think about back in the, in the 80s, you know, when a lot of the difficulties were brewing still in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. It just depends on, on which side you really find yourselves. Now, for the first century, the word that connoted someone that was operating not out of principles or ideals, but just simply out of self-interest or just simply violence, was the word leistes. It was, it was a way to, in a sense, um, uh, disparage the, the motives or the ideals of someone that would take part in a revolution. And so leistes was given that. It's probably... The most parallel that we have today is terrorist. You know, for, for us, what was perpetrated on 9-11, that was terrorism. But I guess if you, you know, kind of are on their side, you kind of think of it as, yeah, you know, what, what, what a great uprising that was going on. For, for me, I, uh, my family's Lithuanian. I'm, I'm actually the firstborn in America from my family. And, you know, every, every year we would go to the Lithuanian Independence Day Festival when I was a kid. And, and I would always say, as we're sitting at this, kind of like, you know, the emperor has no clothes, uh, why are we at a freedom festival when we're under the yoke of the Soviet Union? Like, we're, we're, not, a, we're not a sovereign nation. And they're like, oh, don't worry about that. Just, you know, have, have some more Zeppeline and shut up, you know. But, 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 I, but I, I do remember the stories when, when Russia came into Lithuania and I would sit at my grandmom's feet, and you know she's she's 95 now, and I've actually videotaped these stories. But but I remember as a little kid sitting in rapt attention as my grandmom would tell the story of each of her brothers and sisters at the time of the oppression. But the one that I we, my brother and I would wait for, and and we'd you know get the goosebumps was the story of Uncle Felixus, because Uncle Felixus was the guerrilla. They called him partisans during World War II. You know, he was the guerrilla fighter. He was the terrorist. He was the freedom fighter uh, for, for Lithuania. And he led one of the partisan groups, which was called Taurus. Now, his, his uh, nickname was Le Tigre. He was the tiger. 
you know, so we love that too, right? So tell us about the tiger. Tell us about the tiger. You know, and she would tell how in 1945, as the Russians came in, that he, he actually took to the woods with, with, with kind of a, a band of, of guerrillas, a band of partisans, and, and how they would at every turn always be plotting to be able to undermine either the, the, the equipment supplies or the tanks or the munitions, whatever it might be, of the Romans and how bravely they fought and incident after incident. We're like, yeah, this is great, uh, over and over again. And how ultimately, however, in, in 1950, after spending all that time, and Lithuania is a cold place, all that time in the woods, and you know what? He went there with his wife, as did many of the others. This wasn't just you know, a, a bro thing that was going on. I mean, they, they all went for the cause of freedom to radically live that way on the edge for, for insurrection. But in 1950, he was found out. They did circle him. They did kill him. And then you know what they did after they killed him? Is They brought his body to the local village of Mariopolis. And in there, they forced the entire village at gunpoint, to come out to the square, which was a cobblestone square around some sort of a, a central meeting place. And there, with everybody lined up along the roads, they hitched his naked body to a horse and carriage and drug his naked body round and round and round until basically the, the, the body was falling apart at the end. Why? It's the exact same thing that crucifixions were. It was to make sure that everybody there saw the power of the Soviet regime and that if they thought that if they could rise up like the, the, the great Felixis, the great tiger, well, look what happened to him. This will happen to you. And it was designed to steal their hearts and make their hearts melt in fear rather than to rise up against the oppression that was what was going on against them at that time. And so for these people that are sitting there, and I, and I remember as a kid always thinking like, oh, what can we do? My brother and I would always say, what can we do one day? Well, how can we kind of like, you know, bring, bring about a, a radical life, a life of purpose, a life of significance? You know, we kind of always yearn for that, having been fed on that. And then I do remember even as a, not as a kid, but, but, but as, a, as a recent uh, grad from, from, it wasn't that recent, 1991, uh, however old I was. <laughs> I'm older than I'm, I'm realizing here. But in 1991, you know, listening in my basement in Illinois as, as the Lithuanian Revolution was really coming about, it was the first, first country really to kind of break free from the yoke of, of Soviet oppression, you know, just like tears streaming down my eyes and, and hearing how they really kind of stood up against the Soviet tanks and you know, kind of been, been able to secure that freedom. Just fantastic stuff. And, but this is all happening right before I was about to be called by the Messiah to take up my cross. Uh, which was going to happen just a year later uh, for me. And, and so the, the, the call that, that is really given here with the, the call to take up your cross is, this is important. As we said earlier, a verse cannot mean now what it did not mean then. And for us, we here take up the cross, and we don't necessarily think, I've got you know, bad hips. Uh, that's just my cross to bear. We, I, we probably don't think that. But I think what we might think is, maybe cross means to me is to so hate my sins that I crucify my sins, that I put my sins on the cross, that we spiritualize it to a degree that that audience could never have done so. Why? Because it's before Easter. They, they, they weren't hearing these words after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, they were hearing these words right after the explanation of all of that, but they were still being called by Jesus to a very clear call. And that was that if you're going to come after me, if you're going to Akalatheo, if you're part of this thing, well then, you are basically joining a band of revolutionaries. 
not political revolutionaries, not military, not, not, but, but spiritual revolutionaries. Revolutionaries nonetheless. And, and as a matter of fact, what were the charges that really put these robbers in prison? Because it wasn't robbery. Mark 15, 7 says that they were put, they were, had committed murder in the insurrection. Two for two. Murder and insurrection. That was the real crime. That's why those three crosses were already prepared for them. And then when you see the Jews bring Jesus before Pilate and they want to make sure that a charge will stick to him that will be cause for, for, cause for crucifixion, they say he incites the people. In other words, he is a revolutionary, setting himself up as king, even up against the very sovereignty of Caesar himself. And so for this crowd... Why I say it would probably be like a shockwave to them, going across them. For this crowd, what they heard, they heard, if you want to follow me, then you need to become a revolutionary. And then he goes on to explain, you want to save your life? You'll lose it. That's the words of taking up the cross. In other words, you want to play it safe, you're going to lose it all. But if you're willing to actually lose it all, then you'll know safety, salvation. What good is it for you to get all you want in this life and in the end just to lose it all? The only path is the path of revolution. The only path is the path of the cross. Now, did this end up them just saying, well, theoretically, yes, I would. If, if the time could, came, I, I, I would. You know, of the people that we know were in that crowd right there, it is fascinating to, to even know what, what happened to many of them. Uh, this, this is actually a, a depiction... In, in an early painting of Mark. And you know what happened to Mark? Mark was not an apostle. He, he hung out with Peter, sure. But, but what happened to Mark is he went to Alexandria, Egypt, preached the gospel, and he was drugged th- cruelly through the streets until he died. It was basically falling apart. Uh, how about Bartholomew? Ah, Bartholomew got skinned alive for preaching the gospel. Peter, we know, Hung upside down. Thomas, you got to go to that spot in uh, southern India. Thomas, who gets a bad rap with this whole doubting Thomas thing, he went radically to preach the gospel throughout southern India. And his disciple, Thutis, actually went into China itself. He, he probably, in terms of geography, did more than probably anybody else with regards to the gospel. But, but because he would not compromise on his message of the gospel, uh, the, the, the uh, pagan priests ran him through with a spear. Andrew was actually crucified on what is called an Andrew cross. It's a cross shaped like an X rather than like a T. It took him longer to die than many of the other apostles in his martyrdom. And his last speech from the cross is supposedly one of the most stirring of all sermons that has ever been given as he preached to his captors during that time. Luke went back to his classic land of Greece and there he was hung from an olive tree. Matthew went to Ethiopia, where, where he was slain with a sword. James, thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple. He was a good Jew. They, they respected him much. And when they came to him and asked him to recant his beliefs in, in Christ as the Son of God, they finally took and they beat him in the head with a fuller's club until he died. Jude, shot to death with arrows. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Barnabas, stoned to death by the Jews at Salonika. And Paul 
after various tortures and persecutions, because he was a Roman citizen not allowed to be uh, subjected to crucifixion, was beheaded uh, by the sword uh, where his head was chopped off. For these guys, it wasn't something theoretical. And when they heard Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me, they knew why he said deny self before that very phrase. And our call, if we are to actually follow this call, is that we likewise are to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow him, because it is the call for anyone, if anyone, and and this is any, I mean, even us right here, if any one of us is to actually be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, we must take up our cross and follow him. It's not Christianity 405, it's Christianity 101. This is the basic expectation. This is the mindset in which we enter into the world. It doesn't mean that you have to you know, bring about you know, revolution from a kind of a political standpoint. But it does mean that everywhere we go, every opportunity that we have, that we are always thinking like Christ, how can I bring about spiritual revolution? What can I do to connect to this person, to have opportunity to bring about spiritual revolution? And you know what's interesting is when you go about spiritual revolution, you're not safe from persecution. Because that's what all of these guys did. And every one of them, save John, who, by the way, died in exile after being tortured in a vat of, of boiling oil, uh, all of them were persecuted. They weren't going about any sort of, of revolution other than a spiritual revolution. But they were revolutionaries nonetheless, no mistake about it. These are the men who turned the world upside down. They knew no other standard. It is what they all did. It was the basic expectation. They knew what it meant in case there was any you know, debating about it, Jesus clarified it by saying, and by the way, I'll say it again, because he, he repeats it, follow me. How is it that Jesus died? Well, he died as being a spiritual revolutionary, one who was inciting the people. And it may be that we are not persecuted either because we live in such a wonderful time or because we're not really getting after spiritual revolution with the same fervor that they really have been, been getting after that. There was a famous Anglican who said something very convicting. He's an Anglican bishop. He says, wherever Paul goes, a riot breaks out. Wherever I go, they serve tea. I think, wow, do I want to be you know, full of years at the end of my life and, and have something like that to say? Or, or rather that it could be said that, you know what, every opportunity that I had, I took up the cross. And there is no option because either... A compromise of Christianity will destroy our cross-bearing or our cross-bearing will destroy that compromise of Christianity. And we've got to decide which one it's going to be. That we're either going to take up that cross and keep it or we're going to put that cross down at some point because we think we have a better way. But once we do, here's what Jesus has to say. And this is very convicting. Look over in Luke 14. How you bring about that revolution, I don't know. But I know with every opportunity that you have, we can be thinking of nothing else. How am I going to be used? How am I intentional today about bringing about a real change in this world? Because Jesus does say, 
in verse 27 of another very familiar passage to us. And whoever does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Do we get the depth of that? This is not like, well, you know what? Maybe I'm going to aspire to this. We have no choice. If we do not take up our cross and follow him, we cannot be Christians. But this is the life that Jesus calls us to. Nothing less. It's radical. It's beautiful. As a matter of fact, this is Jesus' Braveheart speech right here. You know, I see in you a fear that would you know, take the heart of me. You know, will you fight? And they're like, oh, what, against that? He said, yeah, fight and you may die. But many years from now, will you not trade all those days from this day to that for just one chance, one chance to come back here and tell those oppressors that you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom. Ah, off they go. This is, this is what they heard there. This is as intense as it was for them to realize which way are we going to go. We are, it's a narrow path. It is a rare charge. It is a high calling. It is an epic adventure. It is a battle to fight. But it is given to us. You know, the movies, they've got cool panning shots. They've got steady cams. They've got mist. They've got music. But let's just read this passage, understanding with a little bit of exegesis from this, the depth of what it would have been like to be in those circles, gathered around Jesus, and we'll have a little bit of musical accompaniment. We could do that much, right, for Jesus? And let's read it one more time. Turn, if you're not back at Mark 8. I believe this probably is what it must have felt like. Gates of Hades, Caesarea, all of this, and the Messiah finally revealed the Deliverer, and, and here it is. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. 
Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and he said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Let's go to break.